0: Over the years, United States healthcare policy has often been discussed by media outlets, politicians, and voters themselves. From the passing of the Affordable Care Act in 2010 and the impact that has had on Medicare and Medicaid funding over the last decade, partisan positioning on universal healthcare coverage, as well as the devastating impact legislation has had on rural health systems, we realize that the ties between health policy and healthcare delivery are important. Now that the country has been confronted with an unprecedented public health crisis, is healthcare poised to help our industry transition to a post-COVID world? The CARES Act and the ongoing crisis relief legislation directed toward hospitals and health systems is designed to ensure that we have the financial means to continue responding throughout this pandemic. And in the means of telemedicine, some legislation even has hastened the adoption of already proven health technology solutions but there are still inherent tensions in how policy can drive much needed change to our industry. Welcome to The New Normal, conversations about the future of healthcare from Touchpoint Media. Through interviews with leading industry experts, this program explores how the current public health crisis is forcing our industry to transform and change. In this episode, I speak with Paul Keckley, a healthcare policy analyst and widely known industry expert. Paul is a frequent speaker and advisor to healthcare organizations focused on long-term growth, sustainability, and advocacy strategies. He is a publisher of many books and articles on healthcare policy, and in his past experience, preceding the passage of the Affordable Care Act, has even facilitated sessions between White House Office of Healthcare Reform and major health industry trade groups as private sector input was sought in the legislation. Listen in as Paul and I discuss how health policy is shifting to support our industry in a post-COVID-19 world. You've been spending a lot of time in healthcare policy over the years. That's certainly your, your focus and your expertise. How has healthcare policy shaped and even restricted innovation and transformation in health systems?
1: Chris, the world of policy typically follows, does not lead innovations that are result of new technologies or clinical innovations. Policy and regulation basically are the swim lanes in which the operators in the industry are able to innovate, but each sector has its own set of swim lanes. And the policymakers tend to be catching up to innovation rather than leading it or stimulating it which was the uh, kind of novelty in the Affordable Care Act of having the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI. It was, let's acknowledge that we tend to be more focused on lag indicators and looking through the rear view mirror than a forward view. So in the aggregate, if you looked at policymaking, you'd not see a lot of stimulus for significant change. Can I, can I give you a real simple example? Sure. There's a buzz about telehealth right now. And in the CARES Act, there's $200 million set aside for enhancing the use of telehealth and the delivery of care. Every person listening to this podcast has been aware of telehealth for 20 years. And we all knew that there were ways that you could do things without a physical in-office visit. But suddenly, necessity is the mother of innovation, maybe. We discovered if everybody has to social distance, maybe we ought to find ways to do that other than in, in the office. And we look at telehealth. Well, the operators of telehealth have been around for 20 years. So the policy world caught up to an innovation that had already been embedded in the system. And that's the way it happens the rules and regs tend to catch up to something that innovators in the
0: industry had already recognized. I almost see that this national pandemic that we're dealing with, or should I even say an international pandemic that we're dealing with, has kind of propelled the advancement of some of these technologies like telemedicine and telehealth. But part of that was due to the fact of the lowering of the regulations, because traditionally telemedicine telehealth had trouble getting started. There were many reasons it had trouble getting started, but one of those is that challenge between state-level regulations that were different and, and undefined and a federal policy that now with the CARES Act, normalized or flattened the regulations across the country to allow us to innovate across state lines, so to speak. Is that a fair reflection of how policy typically works in the United States?
1: Yeah. If you looked at telehealth specifically, you'd see a second issue, which was how much will the clinicians who use telehealth be compensated by the health plans You had this tension over, I don't want anybody to take any dollars away from my W-2, my pocketbook. So if televisits mean I get 40% less payment, I'm not interested. And then secondly, if you wanted to create a barrier, you use state licensing laws to say, this doctor should not be able to practice electronically in the state of Texas or wherever. This is not a new strategy. When we had the retail clinics begin to pop up 15 years ago, uh, we had the same complaints. We had every state medical association file suits against the retail drugstore chains saying you can't do a urine specimen in a retail clinic. You're going to have to have a separate restroom and have some way of monitoring that and there were all kinds of barriers put up ironically it didn't stop the cvs's and the kroger's and the walgreens and the costco's and the walmart's and others from doing this so it's another reflection of the fact that the gravity of incumbents and the way things have always been has always been first cousin to regulations that reinforce their incumbency. And it makes it hard for folks to enter the industry. The regs make it hard, and the incumbents leverage a lot of power. What happens typically is an innovator prefers to be forgiven than ask permission. And those innovators find niches and then... You look up one day and there's a COVID, or there's a major event in a marketplace that says maybe we ought to take a fresh look. I think that's kind of where we are. The other thing that you reference is important. The way policy in healthcare has been historically structured, uh, structurally, is you had a set of healthcare services, and then you had public health, and they operated separately, so we had the Department of Health and Human Services, but we separated most of those programs. There's 72 major federal public health programs, which don't integrate at all with the delivery of health care in communities, except through hospital emergency rooms and in some other settings. So structurally, we always separated the two. We ironically let the state's play a much more direct role on the human services side than we did the healthcare side. So we basically gave budgets and allocated some Medicaid funds and said you take care of these underserved public health issues. But the healthcare industry would operate separately with CONs and licensing of doctors and so now what we have post coronavirus is is it now necessary to think of integrating health and social services. Will the future state really be the convergence of these two, especially since we found out in the coronavirus that a lot of the susceptibility to the virus was in underserved populations? For the past three or four years, we've been talking about social determinants. Well, back in the day, we also called those risk factors and comorbidities. This is not new to the healthcare system. But it's now front page. Now we're realizing that the way we've delivered and constructed the healthcare system doesn't work for every population. So I think this is a teachable moment for healthcare, especially in the policy world. And it can't afford to lag, it can't afford to
0: catch up. It's going to have to get out ahead. As we look at this, this tension between state and federal is something that's top of mind to me, and part of that is because I'm wondering if there's going to be a larger drive on a federal level to kind of standardize the way we're going to react to things rather than do it state by state level. Are we looking now at more, more federal policy pursuits in the future state?
1: Absolutely. Uh, there's no question. Here's the reality. Federal government had always operated with the presumption that the feds would play a role in services for seniors and lower socioeconomic and at-risk populations like ESRD or Medicaid and others, well, that represents almost half of the revenue flows in the healthcare system today. So the government is a major source of funds, and it also sets the rules at a federal level for programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Indian Health, federal employee health, and so on. The state role had been to regulate industries primarily around supply, demand, and fraud. So there had been a view that we should let the medical society determine scope of practice for physicians, but if you went across a state line, you could have a different scope of practice for an advanced practice nurse, for instance, or the ability to diagnose and treat. States were responsible for determining what's qualified health insurance. States are now responsible for advancing their own drug price controls in places like Maryland and others, where they've passed regulations to restrict how much the drug companies can charge. So there's always been this interesting tension between the federal government, which uses its clout as a major purchaser of care for Medicare and other groups, and states that had responsibility for managing supply, demand, and a certain amount of oversight of fraud. The role the states have played has become problematic to large national and regional employers because it costs more to deal with multiple regulatory venues. And it's clear that states don't do a very good job of managing health care. States are prone to look at education and public services like transportation and security as the high priorities because they represent a bigger chunk of their budgets. And because the federal government pays, which most people are aware about, on average, about 60% of the Medicaid funds that a state gets, the states have not had the same kind of pressure for that revenue. If you think about it, if I know that half, 60% or more of the Medicaid budget is going to come from the feds, then it becomes arbitrary as to whether I want to expand Medicaid or not, which 36 states did, 14 didn't. So the state role has become problematic in healthcare, and there's been this growing sense in D.C. that we need to transition this high variability in how healthcare is delivered and paid for at the state level to a much more federal process. And some would even say it's important enough that we create some kind of an independent, almost like a federal reserve to look at health care, not through a partisan lens, but through a policy And capital lens, how much money is spent in healthcare and where is it best spent? Everybody on this podcast knows that if we were doing a whiteboard, we'd probably spend the money in different ways. But it's just not the way we're taking care of our specialists or taking care of our shareholders. So if you were whiteboarding this thing, you'd probably do it differently. And that would probably mean you don't have wide variability state to state. For the same reason that the interstate system is not a state by state decision.
0: It's a theme we're going to hear more about the day that we're recording this podcast was the day after a 484 billion dollar federal coronavirus relief bill was passed of which a fair amount of it 75 billion for hospitals and 25 billion for disease testing was earmarked to help support relief for the hospitals and and basically to support this industry how do we see those relief funds being now distributed
1: well it's as you know uh, in the first 100 billion of the cares act and then the 75. They're earmarking it to various cohorts within the, quote, acute space. So you'll see designated earmarking for rurals. You'll see some designated for the essential hospitals or the safety net hospitals, as we call them. The first tranche that went out was a very blunt instrument. It was based on Medicare as a percent of your revenues. The mechanism we'll use to distribute that money is likely to start including, not just the impact of COVID, but preparedness for what comes after. So to what extent will an organization take on more responsibility for public health and testing? And to what extent will an organization's primary care network be equipped for screening So that's the thinking that's going on right now. That's kind of a forward look of how you distribute the money. The uh, funds that were appropriated through these two tranches was essentially emergency relief for those hardest hit financially. But in this second tranche, there are some elements that say we're going to look beyond survival to a method of managing this better in the future. And that's where folks, as they're aware, the attestations that are required as this money goes out will reflect all those nuances. You can be eligible for X amount of money if your lab has the capability to do a certain amount of testing and it's already in its inventory, has the reagent or has that agreement in place to do mass testing and things like that.
0: As a layman listening to this, it certainly sounds to me like this is a movement or and I wouldn't say a movement but this policy certainly is moving us closer to looking at healthcare on a national level and naturally in my mind I think about the sort of the resistance that we had around the affordable care act from a few years ago and certainly there's been a lot of conversation on a policy perspective around single payer insurance universal healthcare coverage etc Do you think that this portends a potential movement towards more of a unified approach towards healthcare across the country?
1: Yeah, I think with the caveat that it's a private system. Our system will evolve from local doctors, independently run practices, local hospitals and nursing homes and post-acute that sits in a separate sector to regional integrated systems of health in which the physicians, the post-acute services, the acute in and outpatient services are all part of one integrated delivery unit. And most of these will also either have their own insurance products or partner in insurance products, so that you create this tension around financing and delivery, around affordability, accessibility, and quality. How to get from here to there? We already see that of 382, quote, hospital markets in the country. We already see that in about 40, where you have these integrated systems evolving. And what will be clear is that increasingly, these public health responsibilities will become part of that. If the payment mechanisms of the federal government are moving us more toward bundled payments and capitated payments, which appears clear, then these integrated units that can manage the payment and appropriate the resources across the system will have advantages. And that's exactly what we're seeing, which then means that Local health care is an appropriate description for certain sets of services, but regional and national services will be another set, and not all healthcare is
0: local in the future when you say that, in fact, it it speaks to another thing that I've been thinking about a lot too, which is this is a global issue. COVID-19 is a global issue. And America's role in the global response to this virus and how to, to support that, it, it really speaks to a much larger responsibility, not just you know unifying the country, but now unifying us on a global level around public health and public health policy. What are your thoughts on how U.S. policy may shift to become more aligned with that global health environment?
1: Well, it's interesting because uh, the evidence, the science on which we base decisions about uh, the efficacy and effectiveness of drugs or interventions or treatments is not constrained by country boundaries. When I was at Vanderbilt, I ran the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. And on a daily basis, you're coursing through around 80 major clinical trials and about 20,000 different sources of information in the healthcare infosphere to figure out what changed about how to diagnose, how to treat, signs, symptoms, risk factors, comorbidities, drug trials. So the science on which we base what works and what doesn't work is expanding exponentially, and it's sourced globally. We have the mechanisms in place to share that data But back to the first discussion point we had, we have some fairly nationalistic constraints on how much we'll import from other countries, which is the importance of organizations like the WHO and others. So will policy embrace more science from other countries? Absolutely. For the same reason that companies like Apple and Facebook and Microsoft and Intel look at a global marketplace, the infrastructure and the processes to be able to look at a global market don't, don't mean that they discount differences by country or differences by community, but they see an entire marketplace. And we haven't done that in healthcare. We constructed our system kind of as a patchwork of the Western European system, which is an allopathic system, and this interesting approach to how employers' roles are to be played in our system, which is really about a 80-year-old phenomenon in our system. So we're a hybrid. We haven't paid attention to the global market the way we should, but we will. That'll be necessary. The coronavirus, COVID-19 have forced that on us.
0: It's interesting to think about this because, uh, you know, even though as we we started off talking, right, that policy is kind of guided by the involvement of science and, and, and healthcare and the innovations, there certainly is that sort of like hand in hand that goes with the industry itself and can lead us in certain ways. And certainly, regardless of our own partisan affiliations, we we really believe that that partnership really should be there to advance us further. There may be other advancements in healthcare policy that could impact what the future state would be like. For example, recently, you know, HHS finalized some rules around the transfer of patient data, medical history, to uh, be involved now uh, on a public health response. What are some other things on a policy perspective that we in healthcare should be keeping our eyes on as potentially leading to what the post-COVID world would look like in healthcare?
1: Yeah, I think, one, you have to be wary of how much the economic downturn will impact how the U.S. health system responds the uh, advancing of these funds in the CARES Act and other, the economic downturn are adding about $4 trillion to the U.S. deficit. Healthcare is the biggest expenditure target for cost cutting at the federal level. So, in the November 3rd election, you're going to hear a lot about how we recover. And you want to be conscious of the fact that healthcare cuts is a target for that. And it will change, for instance, things like how are we defining private inurement and stark regulations to enable doctors to compete more directly with hospitals or others? How much risk do we want to see in these alternative payment models? The ACOs have not proven to be a huge success. We'll see a lot of discussion around these social determinants, but through the lens of managed Medicare, the Medicare Advantage plans, where supplemental services are covered, like nutrition and transportation and housing and security and other things. It's basically Medicare Advantage is the federal government's window to this bridge between healthcare services and social services. You'll see a lot of discussion around the integration of nursing homes and skilled nursing with hospitals and local providers. The nursing homes were probably the petri dish for the coronavirus and not on the radar for most healthcare organizations, except, ironically, if you're a rural health provider. Uh, We have 300 nursing homes that are really part of rural health organizations. So we're going to have a new discussion around the intersection of post-acute care, nursing home care, and these integrated systems as they evolve. I say lastly, a big thing that I pay a lot of attention to is to what extent can we enable self-care? The healthcare system has a predisposition to think that consumers are incapable of managing their own health, and that its dependence on doctors and hospitals to make decisions on their behalf is just the necessity. That's the way you have to do it. I think we'll come back and revisit a lot of these things. I don't think healthcare is a B2C industry, but there are certainly parts of it where the consumer is going to play a bigger role And the federal government's inclination around that has been, let's make the system easier to understand and more price transparent. But at the end of the day, we want to reinforce the conventional roles people play. Doctors make decisions. Hospitals bear a lot of that financial risk. Consumers are patients. They need to do their part. But the physicians should bear no accountability for the outcome because there's so many other things that can impact the outcome. So the doctor says, I don't want to manage the outcome. I want to manage the process. I think we're going to revisit all those things.
0: Yeah, I think that last point is really critical. We've been talking recently a lot about patient first within the health systems. I think that in and of itself is sort of an advancement. This coronavirus for sure has made healthcare consumers digitally driven with the use of, of, of telemedicine, of remote patient monitoring, et cetera. I think that is it is high time for us to start to revisit that traditional care delivery that really hasn't changed that much in the last 50 years, honestly, despite the advancements of technology and innovation.
1: Well, we benefit by keeping it the way it was. The incumbents Benefit by protecting a status quo. And what we think of as innovation tends to be more just radical incrementalism. We just tweak it a little bit and we declare it an innovation. Industries that have gone through transformation, those changes have been the result of a very disruptive technology and a regulatory landscape that allowed somebody to bully their way into the system without permission, and then you wake up one day and they're a mainstay. They're the status quo. We haven't seen that in healthcare, and we will. I think the most telling forethought about the future will be, is the epicenter of health in the future a facility? Is it a hospital, or is it a home? Or is it the personal communication devices that you wear and you carry we know less than 1% of the people in the country have access to their own medical information. We have a long way to go. Where I started, I'll finish. I think policy tends to follow, not lead. So the leads will be those that see a future state, see an opportunity to transition from here to there, do so with a certain amount of risk because no one knows for sure how all this will play out. But the status quo is not sustainable. So I think the policy folks coming out of the coronavirus will be a little more welcoming of some of these changes because what this coronavirus exposed was the structural flaw of the system. We have a public health system that was underfunded and was not thinking beyond near. And we have a private healthcare system that until 60 days ago, The debate was fighting against price transparency, fighting to keep interoperability down the road further out, and fighting to keep these alternative payment models from becoming too onerous. That's very self-serving, and that's not the future.
0: Paul, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I want to thank you so much for your time and your expertise. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you. The tensions between public health and healthcare delivery were strong before, and are only exacerbated by the public health crisis. In addition, the relationship of federal healthcare reform legislation and the adoption of these policies at a state level provide additional complexity in an already complicated system. And now that this global pandemic is forcing the U.S. to respond on a global level, it makes me ask, Will healthcare policy continue to reinforce the status quo, or is this an opportune time for legislation to begin propelling our system into the future? You have been listening to The New Normal Conversations about the Future of Healthcare from Touchpoint Media. If you enjoyed today's program, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded the show. The music from this program is called I Don't Know by Grapes and is available as a royalty-free download on ccmixter.org. To find out more about Touchpoint Media, visit us online at touchpoint.health.